So go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50. We're going to finish up the book of Genesis tonight. It was on my heart to go back and look at a couple uh, verses in 49. We wanted to look at uh, the prophecy regarding uh, Joseph. Um, you know, I just couldn't fit it all in. Couldn't fit it all in. And so, um, you know, we'll do that maybe on a, a Sunday morning or something like that because that's such a rich, rich, rich couple of verses. But um, we're going to knock out Genesis 50 here, our last Thursday here in the rock. And, uh, you know, just a fitting end uh, to close this book. Last week, you'll remember we saw Jacob. Uh, he's blessing his boys. He's leaning on his staff. You know, it's, it was interesting to me last week to notice, to see Jacob proclaim that he had been waiting for Yeshua, waiting for Jesus, you know, and boy, it just speaks to me. What a great example that is to be waiting for our Savior. Paul wrote to the saints in Philippi, and he stated that we are to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, did I say Philippi? That's 1 Corinthians 1.7. Uh, so... I think that's what it is. Sometimes, you know, when I copy my notes, somebody fact check me, you know. But anyway, he tells uh, Titus, he tells his young protege, Titus, that we're to be looking, we're to be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior. That's Titus 2.14. As a church, as individual followers and believers in Jesus Christ, we need to have our eyes fixed on eternity, right? We need to be looking up. We need to be eagerly waiting the soon return of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, he writes, 1 John 3, 3, he writes that everyone who has this hope in himself, in him, purifies himself just as he is pure. I mean, that hope, that anticipation of the soon return of our Lord, our focus on heaven is something that helps us, enables us to, to say no to sin while we're waiting for our Savior. And so we left off last week with that scene. Uh, again, Jacob blessing his boys. In verse 33, chapter 49, verse 33, it says, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I mean, it's not a bad way to go. I mean, you're just on your bed and you just kind of curl up, pull the blankets up over your feet, shut your eyes and breathe your last breath and slip into, you know, the presence of the Lord. It's not a bad way to go. But uh, there is a better way to go, right? The rapture. It's going to be great, you know, where we take a breath in this world and then all of a sudden the next breath is before our Lord. I mean, I can't wait for the rapture. Hopefully, before we finish this study. Wouldn't that be nice? Huh? Yeah, that would be good. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. Right after Jacob dies, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And you might remember 
back in Genesis 45, when the boys told Jacob that Joseph was alive and that he'd sent carts to take him back to Egypt, Jacob said, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And then in Genesis 46, we saw Jacob, he's traveling to Egypt, right? And while he's on his way, Jacob, he comes to Beersheba and he realizes that he hadn't sought the Lord as to whether or not he should go down to Egypt. So in his excitement, you know, Joseph is alive. He sent carts. Jacob, man, he just starts packing his stuff and he's on the road. Let's go, right? But as he's headed towards Egypt, he's filled with fear, we read. And he very wisely stopped right there, stopped in his tracks in order to seek the Lord before he went any further. He stopped he sought the Lord. He offered sacrifices, right? And the Lord appeared to him and said, don't be afraid, uh, Jacob. Go ahead, go down to Egypt and I'll go with you and I'll bless you. And one of the things the Lord told Jacob to lie any fear that he might have had was when you die, Joseph will be there and he will close your eyes. So just as God said to Jacob, so it happened. Right? So Jacob fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him. Forty days required for the embalming process. For such are the days required. Well, it just says it. Sorry. That's my own commentary. For such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. So when a pharaoh would die, you would mourn for him 72 days, right? So the fact that they're mourning for Jacob for 70 days, I mean, they're showing him just very high regard, very high respect and honor is what they're showing him. Today, Jews are buried within 24 hours of their death. Muslims too, for that matter. And the reason for that is because uh, Genesis 3.19 says, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so they don't want to be embalmed. They don't want anything to impede that process. Um, but it's going to be some time before Joseph is able to take Jacob's body back to Canaan, be able to embark on that long journey back to Canaan. So he has to do something to prepare the body for uh, that journey. So he embalms Jacob. So at this point, Jacob becomes both father and mummy to a Joseph. Come on now. I mean, number one, nobody charged you guys to get in here, right? So you get what you pay for, okay? And number two, I mean, everybody's entitled to, you know, these Bible jokes, no matter how bad they are. Everybody's entitled to hear them one time. But anyway... I'm the funniest guy I know. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Thank you. I have a movie I want to show you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, verse 4. Now, when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. 
in uh, my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So evidently, Joseph being in contact with his father's dead body, with Jacob's body, during this mourning process, he, for maybe that reason or some other reason, he doesn't have direct access to Pharaoh anymore. So what he does is he approaches Pharaoh's family for them to go and ask Pharaoh for permission. And Pharaoh says, yes, of course, of course, uh, go bury your father. And, uh, you know, you just take a minute to think about these things. I mean, it's so easy to just pass by these things. But it's been 39 years since Joseph has been in the promised land. 39 years since he's been in the land of Canaan. And now he's going to bury his father. And you just got to think about just the, the amount of emotion that's going on that uh, Jacob is probably experiencing, sorry, Joseph is probably experiencing at this time. Maybe overwhelming, you know? And Joseph, verse 7, went up to bury his father. So just as Joseph swore to his father, he kept his word. And again, what a beautiful picture it is of one that's greater than Joseph, right? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Just this wonderful picture throughout all of Joseph's life of Jesus. Um, you know, it's a picture of Jesus who will keep every single promise that he's made to each one of us in his word. He's going to keep that promise to you, right? So Joseph kept his word and he went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh. So just try to imagine the scene, you know, what it must have looked like. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt. I mean, you just think about this procession, just this pomp and circumstance. I mean, chariots and carts and camels. I mean, it's just probably goes on for miles, maybe. And verse 8, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks and their herds were left uh, in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor at Atad, Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a, a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the level of mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizarim, which is beyond the Jordan. And Abel Mizarim means the mourning of Egypt. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, Machpelah before Mamre. You know, when I'm not up here. When I'm just reading at home, I say all the Hebrew words right. It's only like when I get up here, I struggle with them. Machpelah, before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. And he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. 
When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So you want to notice that the boys here, they see what they did to Joseph as evil. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing, right? It's, a, it's evidence. It's a sign of the change in their life. But as we are we're also going to see, right, right here, the brothers are kind of slipping back, though, into their old ways. The brothers are fearing revenge now that Jacob is dead. I mean, they've probably talked together. They've probably come to the conclusion corporately that, you know, Joseph, he's just been playing nice for the last 17 years, right? He's just been waiting for dad to die. And now that he's dead, now Joseph is going to show us his true colors, right? And, uh, and they're right. Joseph is going to show them his true colors. But, you know, it's not the colors they're expecting to see. And it says in verse 16, so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, now the brothers are scheming here, right? They come up with this plan to send messengers to Joseph. And they say to them, this is exactly what we want you to say to Joseph. And they say, before your father died, he commanded saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive their trespass of the servants of the God of your father. I mean, they put out this lie, right? And they're trying to manipulate the situation in their favor, right? They're trying to just, they're just trying to save their skin at this point, right? But God doesn't need our lies, God doesn't need our lies. He can't bless a lie. And Joseph, when he hears this, it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. It just breaks Joseph's heart to hear this. Right? When Joseph hears this, he just breaks down and begins crying. Right? He's already revealed his heart to the, to the brothers. Remember uh, back in uh, Genesis 45, he told them not to be angry with themselves, not to tr be troubled along the way for what they did to him. He told them not to grieve over what they did, but it was God who sent him ahead of them to preserve them. He'd already told his brothers that he forgave them, right? He told them God's been behind all of this, right? God's been using this. And it just broke his heart to hear his brothers say this. And I think partly it broke his heart because of this reason here. For 17 years, Joseph's brothers had not accepted the fact that he had forgiven them. They're still living in guilt and fear. You know, to see that they didn't accept his forgiveness, um, it's just too much for Joseph to handle. Right? And he just breaks down. He begins weeping. You know, when someone wrongs you and they come to you and ask you for forgiveness, as a child of God, you have a responsibility to forgive them. That's what the Bible tells us. And when you wrong somebody and, and uh, you know, they forgive you you ask them for forgiveness and they forgive you, 
you have just as much of a responsibility to accept that forgiveness, right? The brothers, they've just wasted 17 years of living their life in fear and guilt instead of enjoying Joseph and just receiving his forgiveness. And, and it just breaks Joseph's heart. And again, here we see another picture of one greater than Joseph. Uh, again, it's a picture of Jesus Christ. How it breaks the Lord's heart when we don't fully accept his forgiveness. How it grieves him when we continue to live in fear and condemnation over wrongs that we've done or, or you know, it causes just him to, uh, it causes just his heart to break, right? He has forgiven us. We don't have to live in the guilt of wrongdoing anymore. We don't have to live in condemnation. He's not expecting us. We don't have to live in fear, in guilt. No, he's forgiven us completely and he's forgiven us perfectly, right? He's promised to remember our sin no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. And we read in the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Infinitely far, right? North becomes south as you cross over the North Pole, and south becomes north as you cross over the South Pole, but east and west, they never meet. It's infinitely far, and that's how far God has removed our sins from us, Psalm 103, 12. And verse 18, then his brothers went and fell down before his face, and they said, behold, we are your servants. And again, how this must have broke Joseph's heart also. He doesn't want any more servants. You know, he's got plenty of servants. What Joseph wants is brothers. And in verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? And what Joseph is saying here is that vengeance belongs only to God. I mean, that's both an Old Testament and a New Testament teaching. It's a, both an Old Testament and a New Testament truth. We're never to take matters into our own hands. Now, verse 20, one of the great treasures of the book of Genesis. Now, one of the great treasures of the, of the Bible Verse 20, but as for you, Joseph says to the brothers, you meant evil against me, but God. Man, I tell you what, thank God for the but God passages of the Bible, right? Just to mention a few, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken, uh, uh, overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, just, man, just a gem. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. I mean, that's just to mention a few but God passages, but man, that's a great study. You guys, get out your concordance. Uh, well, nobody probably has a concordance anymore but me. Get on blue letter Bible, type in but God and see what this comes out. Boy, anyway, Joseph says, 
You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And here's the good, right? Joseph continues. Here's the good, that I would have an easy life, that I would be able to buy a lazy boy sofa, eat pizza, drink Diet Coke in front of the TV and watch sports all day, right? Yeah, no, that's not God's, <laughs> that's not God's definition of good. That's not how he defines it, right? God's view of good is to put us in a place where we can influence the world for the kingdom of God, to be a blessing to other people in the name of God. That's the true measure of good in a believer's life. And Joseph holds to that definition here. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph says, you guys meant it for evil, right? What you did, it was bad. I'm not going to minimize it. You meant it for evil, but God worked it out for good that many people would be saved, right? God has placed me here in this place to save two great nations. The only way Joseph can have this perspective, and we've talked about it in past studies, the only way he can have this perspective in light of the 17 years previously that he endured is to have his eyes fixed on God and to place his trust firmly in God to fulfill his promises that God has made to him. Now, the companion verse to Genesis 50, 20, you know it, the companion verse, Romans 8, 28, right? These two verses, they go hand in hand. The context of Romans 8, 28 is suffering and perseverance in suffering. Romans 8 is all about pressing on in this life until the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about the Holy Spirit helping us in our weaknesses and teaching us how to pray when we don't know how to pray. And it's in that context that Paul writes Romans 8, 28. And we read, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. The word Paul uses here for know means to know intuitively as a child of God. Right? As we become children of God, it's something that we know intuitively as his children. The word speaks of knowing, um, uh, the word speaks of something that we can be assured of, absolutely convinced of. That's what Paul is saying to us here. As children of God, it's instilled within us that we know this. Paul is saying that we absolutely know that we can be completely confident in the fact that all things work together for our good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Not maybe work together for the good, not hopefully, not eight out of 10 times it's gonna work together for the good, but it's a certainty. It's an absolute truth. So do you love God? Have you been called according to his purposes? Have you yielded your life to his call? Are you surrendered to his purposes in your life? 
if you can answer with all the honesty in your heart, if you can answer yes to those questions, then Romans 8.28 is a promise to you. It's a promise to stand on. It's a promise to tightly hold close to your heart, right? I know this is true because the spirit of the living God is bearing witness in my heart because I'm a child of God. No matter what the present situation you're facing looks like, as Christians, God wants us to know with absolute confidence that he's working on our behalf. He's working all things together for our good. The real issue is this. Do I believe God's word? Do I believe it? Do you believe it? Are you standing on that promise? If you believe it, then the result will be joy, right? It'll be peace and it'll be thanksgiving, right? When we face various events in life that are difficult, if we believe this promise, then we'll face it with joy, knowing that God is in control. We'll, we'll have peace knowing that God sovereignly has allowed these events to occur in our life, right? And we'll experience thanksgiving in our hearts, knowing that even though we can't see the good now, you know what? We can trust that God is working it out for our good. If as Christians, we don't really believe this promise, either Genesis 50, 20 or Romans 8, 28, then the result will be fear. Fear of the unknown, despair, depression, and murmuring and complaining against God. Well, you may think you're not, you know, murmuring and complaining against God, but you know what? We're going to see in Exodus, right? When we murmur and complain about the situation, we're actually murmuring and complaining against God, Exodus 16. We want to understand where it's absolutely true that God is working all things together uh, for our good. It's also true that we're not always aware of what God is doing, right? Joseph had no idea that God was going to raise him up that God was going to use these experiences to teach him about the Egyptian culture, how um, Egyptians did things. He wasn't aware of the bigger picture that God was accomplishing, but he never lost faith in the God or in the promise of God. Never lost faith in his God, I should say, or the promise of God. Even when it looked impossible for any of what God had revealed to him even when it looked impossible that those things would ever come true. He never lost faith, right? It took time for Joseph to understand and to comprehend that God was working to save the family of Jacob, working to save his family. And he said in Genesis 45, 7, God sent me before you to preserve a prosperity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Joseph didn't have that understanding when he was pleading with his brothers not to sell him into slavery. That's something that came along as he trusted steadfastly in the Lord to fulfill his promises. Most of the time, we're not able to see God's intended end to the situation that he's allowed into our lives, right? 
But to me, that's why Joseph's story is so very encouraging. We can see what God is doing in his life over a period of 30, 40 years by just reading a couple chapters. Right? We can see the end from the beginning. And Paul tells us, now all these things happen to them as examples. Everything in the Old Testament, all the things that happen to the, the, you know, the, the patriarchs and the great men of faith in the Old Testament, they all were, uh, you know, they all happened to them as examples to us. And they were written, he says, for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age has come. Joseph's life and the lives of the Old Testament characters are to be a lesson to us of God's power and his sovereignty and his ability to turn bad things we face as believers into good. And these things are recorded for us with the intent of giving us hope, yeah, and the understanding that we have nothing to fear if the Lord is on our is on our side. And if you're a believer hearing my voice tonight, if you're a believer, then the Lord is on your side. We have nothing to fear. These things were written to foster within our heart the absolute knowledge of God's good plan for our lives, regardless of what we may be facing in the moment. One of my favorite verses, James 5.11 says, Indeed, we count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the, intended in, uh, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Right, The end intended by God in each one of our lives is merciful and compassionate because that's who God is. He's merciful and compassionate and he's loving. I think we also need to realize that there are some things we will not understand this side of heaven. Some things we will, but there are things that we're never going to understand this side of heaven. I heard the story. Uh, as I was thinking about the story, I actually got really excited because I heard the story about this man. And he would go into hospitals and he would minister to people that were bedridden, right? And he had a Bible bookmark, and this is why I got excited because I was like, man, I got a Bible bookmark. I'm going to show him mine. Well, this guy would hold up his Bible bookmark. He would hold it up. You know, it was embroidered. And what it said on it, mine doesn't say this, but what his said on it was, God works all things together for the good to those that love him and are called to his purposes. Right? And he would hold up this uh, bookmark and it was embroidered very beautifully on the front. And, you know, but from the back, it just looked like a mess of threads. I mean, you couldn't make it out what it was, right? It was just knots and threads. And, you, and it just didn't make any sense. And he would, um, you know, hold this up to the patients. And he would say, what do you think about this? Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life? I mean, doesn't it just make you want to worship the Lord? Doesn't it just bless you? And, you know, of course, the... The patients in the hospital, they're looking at it and they're thinking, you know, what are you talking about, man? It's a mess, right? You can't make it out. It's nothing but a bunch of, you know, threads and knots. And, you know, I mean, it's not beautiful at all. But then the man would say, if only you could see it from my perspective. And what he would do then is he would turn it around. 
right? And he'd show it to him. I mean, this is my bookmark. I got it in Jordan. And you know, the front is a lot better looking than the back, isn't it? And you know, the, the, the example was to, to illustrate to people how, you know what, we don't fully understand the things that we're facing, why God has allowed those things into our lives that he's allowed until we get a heavenly perspective. You know, um, but until then, we need to hold fast to the promises of God, right? To believe and believe him and take him at his word. He's never given any of us a reason ever to doubt him. Now, I don't know what you're going through tonight, but I know that God is working it out for the good, you know? And one day you'll look back on it and you'll say, thank you, Lord, now I understand, right? And I believe when we realize God's plan in that situation, you realize God's plan in that situation, I believe with all my heart, you'll say, Lord, I wouldn't change a thing. You know what? Your ways are perfect, Lord. I see that now. I believe it. And Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph, what Joseph says here actually takes Romans 8.28 a step further, right? Even that which is meant for evil in our life. Romans 8.28 is all things work together for the good. But now it's those things that are purposely meant for evil in our life. God is turning around and working for our good. And we see that unmistakably in Joseph's life. I mean, you can't miss it. You just can't miss this. Joseph's brothers very clearly meant what they did to him as evil. They hated Joseph. They tossed him in a pit. They sold him as a slave. And their heart was good riddance. Let's see what comes of this dreamer's dreams now, right? It was an evil act, but God worked it for the good. And we discover this truth in Genesis 50, 20. And we see it carried throughout the Bible. I mean, you see it in David's life as he was pursued by King Saul. For years, David was chased by King Saul. In 1 Samuel 26, 20, we read of David being hunted across the mountains like a partridge. Talk about evil. Saul was intent on killing David, right? But it's amazing how God worked that out for his good. It's good to understand that David became a David. We talked about this in our last men's study in the life of David. But David became a David because there was a Saul in his life. Right? The man that was after God's own heart. The sweet psalmist of Israel, right? The psalms that David wrote. The tender heart that he had. Um, you know, it all came about because he had a Saul in his life, right? Maybe there's a Saul in your life that means, ev means you evil. God is working, right? God is working what is meant for evil in your life, and he's working it for the good. I mean, you look at the imprisonment of Paul. What a bitter thing that was for Paul. Two years of his life, he sat in a prison in Caesarea, right? 
His heart is to evangelize the world, but he's in prison. But while in prison, Paul has the opportunity to witness the Felix, the governor, and then Festus, and then King Agrippa. I mean, ultimately, he had the, the opportunity to witness to Ciro Nero, Caesar Nero himself, right? How could Paul ever have ever hoped for an audience with Caesar Nero had it not been these experiences? How could he ever hope to witness to the emperor of Rome, right? It was through what Satan meant for evil against Paul to shut him up. And that's what God used for the good, to give him a voice where his voice would have not normally have ever been heard, right? God worked it for the good. And we see it on so many different levels of Paul's life. Paul writes to the Philippians and he mentions how many people in Caesar's household uh, had been saved through his ministry, right? God was working uh, during his imprisonment for good, right? Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians, which is a letter of joy. And he wrote over and over again of the joy that he had while he was there in the prison uh, in Rome. And Paul was able to write to them, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice because he believed with absolute certainty that God was able to work that which was meant for evil for good. And God worked it for the good. If Paul can write from prison, rejoice in the Lord always, then I should be able to rejoice in the Lord in the midst of whatever difficult circumstances I'm being faced with, whatever struggles that I'm going through at the moment, right? Paul wrote what we call the prison epistles in prison, right? There are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, right? Just think of the encouragement that you've received when you've read through them, when you've studied those epistles, had Paul not been in prison, he may not have written uh, any of them, right? Instead, he might have just visited those churches in, in person. What Satan meant for evil towards Paul to shut him up, God turned it around for the good. I mean, you look at the apostle John, Domitian, the Roman emperor, he sought to kill John, right? And when John wouldn't die, Domitian banishes him to the the rocky island of Patmos. And what was meant to torment John? Leaving him on that barren island, God worked it out for the good. It was during this time of tribulation that God gave John the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest revelation of Jesus Christ in the Bible. And isn't that so often the case? It's during times of tribulation that we go through that's when we often receive a greater, greater revelation of who our Savior is. God works it for the good. He's working in us during those times of difficulties, building us, shaping us, refining us, sharpening us, equipping us, enabling us. He's working it for the good. I mean, look at, look at great men of God outside of the Bible. Look at Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther combined all the German dialects. There wasn't a common language in Germany. He, com he combined all the German dialects into one language. We call it Hochdeutsch. 
It's high German. It's the German, when you go to school to learn German, you learn high German, the German that Martin Luther created. And after doing that, he translated the Bible into German, right? Where was Martin Luther when he translated the Bible? He was confined in a dungeon in Wartburg Castle. It was during a period of imprisonment that he translated the German Bible that so many Germans today actually read. The Luther Bible is the best translation in German. Look at John Bunyan. On the way up, I was listening to Pilgrim's Progress. You know, uh, One of the greatest works outside the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. Right? It was written while John Bunyan was imprisoned for preaching the gospel without a license, right? He was told to stop preaching publicly. And when he wouldn't, he was arrested and he spent the next 12 years of his life in jail because he refused to give up preaching, right? He was cast into the Bedford jail and kept there in order to silence him. And you know what, John Bunyan, he had a, a wife and a daughter and his daughter was blind. Talk about just already going through difficult times, having a child that was handicapped uh, with blindness, right? His daughter and his wife suffered because he was in jail. Often they would go without food. He could have been released if he would just renounce Christ, but he refused. He wouldn't renounce the gospel. He wouldn't renounce Christ, even though his wife and daughter were suffering. He told a local magistrate that he would rather remain in prison until moss grew on his eyelids than to fail to do what God had commanded. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress for his blind daughter to explain to her the Christian faith, to explain to her things she couldn't see. And again, one of the greatest works in Christian history coming out of what was meant for evil. I mean, look at Corey Ten Boom, prisoner 66730 in Ravensburg concentration camp. She and her family were sent to the concentration camp. You know the story for hiding Jews during World War II. Her entire family died in a German concentration camp. And she said she believed Romans 8.28, but she had a hard time understanding why God would allow the lice in her barracks, right? For everything else, she was able to trust God and give thanks for it in the midst of the problem. Uh, but she said the lice was the one thing that she didn't and couldn't understand. But it was years later, after she was released from the concentration camp, she learned that that area of the camp suffered significantly less sexual and physical abuse because the guards didn't want to go to that barracks because of the lice and the disease that was there. Corey's dear sister, Betsy, man, you read about Betsy, man, she was a sweet, sweet saint. She died in Ravensbrook, right? Corey suffered for years in Ravensbrook. But now we're able to look back on Corey's life and see that the gospel has been preached to literally millions upon millions of people through her books, through her public uh, speaking engagements, through tapes. Millions and millions of people have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have been saved through the testimony 
of God's faithfulness and the gospel preached by Corey Ten Boom. What was meant for evil, God used for good. And you know what? We could go on for a week or two looking at the good that God has brought out of the lives of great men and women of faith, right? The good that was brought out of that which was meant for evil in their lives. And you, you think of what these and others went through and the end that God accomplished through their lives. You know, if we could interview, I think about this often. If we could go to, in, to heaven and interview them, every single person in heaven would have said, it's all worth it. I wish I had more to give. I wish I had trusted more. I wish I had greater faith. I wish I gave more of myself to believing God's promises because God used what was meant for evil and turned it around for the good. All things, we know this. We're confident of it. As believers, all things work together for our good, even those things which are meant for evil in our lives. In all honesty, though, it's easy to see how God's working all things together for the good in other people's lives, right? It's easier to see it in your life than it is for me to see it in my life when I'm going through hard times. We can see, you know, the outcome of their suffering, of their imprisonment, of their incarceration. But when I'm suffering, when I'm being imprisoned, incarcerated, confined, then it's much harder to see. And in those times, we must, we have to hold on to the truth of what we know. And what we know is that God is faithful. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that he's at work, working everything, all things together for our good. Even the things that happened to us that were meant for evil, God will turn those things around for our good. Joseph said, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Verse 21, now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, it's a picture of Jesus, right? Do not be afraid. It's the most often repeated words that we read in the New Testament that Jesus said. Jesus is the one that provides for us and for our families. Jesus is the one that ultimately comforts us. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one that speaks kindly to us as his people. Joseph is the greatest type or illustration of Jesus found in Genesis, you know, and probably even in all of the Old Testament. Verse 22, so Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, Machir uh, the son of Manasseh, uh, were also brought up on Joseph's knee. What a blessing that is, right? I mean, Joseph was truly blessed by the Lord. He suffered greatly in the early years, but how God had blessed him mightily before his story came to a close. There may have been times where Joseph thought God had forsaken him. But God had never left him or abandoned him. And that's what we're to glean from all of this. And we can rest 
and the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us, right? In our times of tribulation, he'll never leave us or abandon us in our trials. After all the hardship that Joseph had endured, he enjoys the blessing of the Lord. He lived a long life and he was able to hold his great grandchildren on his knee. I mean, that's a tremendous blessing. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brother, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones. It can also be translated, carry up my body from here. Joseph says to his family, God is going to take, your, take our people out of Egypt, right? And he's going to return us to the land of Canaan just the way he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Make sure you take me with you. Don't leave me behind. And we read about Joseph in Hebrews chapter 11 in that hall of faith, right? Because he believed the word of God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob spoke. And he told the children of Israel that God would take them back to the land of Canaan. And as we finish this chapter, I think it's interesting that some of Joseph's last words are concerning his body, right? And that they would remember his body. Again, it's a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Some of his last words were telling his disciples, telling his brethren, to remember his body once he was deceased. It says, verse 26, Joseph died being 110 years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, we don't know a lot about the Egyptian embalming process, but what we, we've ha what we have been able to learn, I mean, it's readily that information you can look up in a Bible dictionary and, and you'll learn what we know, Right? And what we know is they would take out the brains and fill that cavity with aloe and spices. And they would take out the major organs through small slits in the body. And again, they would fill that cavity with aloe and spices. And then they would wrap the body very tight with strips of linen. They would also soak the body in different uh, ointments. But again, much of that process is unknown to us today. But isn't it interesting, after Joseph had died, that they wrapped his body in fine linen from head to toe. I mean, again, it's just this picture of our Messiah, how they wrapped him in strips of linen once he died and placed him not in a coffin, but in a tomb. So they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And just imagine how encouraging that coffin must have been to the nation of Israel as they were um, navigating the dark, dark years of bondage in Egypt, right? It was somewhere between three to 400 years after Joseph's death that they were delivered from Egypt. How encouraging that coffin must have been to them. That coffin was a witness to them of God's promises of taking them to the promised land, that God would deliver them from Egypt and return them to the land of Canaan. And when that would happen, they were to make sure that they were to take Joseph's remains with them, to take his body with them. And that coffin, you know, during those dark years of slavery and bondage in Egypt, I mean, it must have been 
just this reminder and just an encouragement of exactly what Joseph prophesied would happen. And again, it's a picture of one greater than Jesus. It's a, or one greater than Joseph. It's a picture of Jesus. He's not given us a coffin to remind us uh, of his promises of deliverance, but an empty tomb, right? I mean, I get excited when I, when I even think about it. not a coffin with a body in it, but a tomb that is empty. We're going to see it. Just a few more months, we're, we're going to see it. It's going to be great. And he's given it to us that we would be reminded that we have been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an, uh, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, right? In those dark, dark days of the nation of Israel, in the bondage of Egypt, they would look at that coffin and be encouraged. They would be reminded of God's promises of their future deliverance. And today, as God's people, we don't look at a coffin with a, a body in it, but again, we look at a tomb that's empty. And we're to be reminded of God's promises that we are begotten again to a living hope. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is alive, right? That And that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and reserved for us in heaven. And that's what the empty tomb is to speak to us about. Well, that's the end of the book. Let's go ahead and pray. You know, if... if if you're here, if you're watching online and you don't know Christ, you don't have that hope. You don't have a living hope. You have no hope at all other than judgment. But the Lord has made a way for you to escape that judgment if you would just humble your heart and pray and ask him to come in and fill you, to forgive you of your sins and to tell him that you're sorry for them and you want to commit your life to him. You want to give him your life. You need to believe the Bible says that Jesus is Lord, that he died, he was buried, and he's resurrected. And with that belief, with that repentance, turning from your sin and turning to God, the Bible promises salvation. And I would just encourage you, if that's you, if you're tired of the mess your life is in, if you want the hardships to work for the good in your life, you want God to turn things around, I'd encourage you, pray right now, just from your heart, ask him, Lord, save me. I'm in need of a savior. I'm a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me. Come into my life. And he promises that he'll do that, make you a new creation. Lord, we want to thank you for this book. Thank you for this time here in the rock to study your word. Lord, we, we uh, are so, you know, it, it, it's kind of bittersweet for me every time I finish a book, Lord. It's bitter because I love that book. I love the book of Genesis, what you've revealed to us in it, what you're working into our lives through it. Lord, what you want us to see, you know, in light of it. Lord, but now we're going to enter into another book and I'm looking forward to that. That's the sweet part. 
Lord, and we do just pray your continued blessing on our study. Lord, we thank you for this, this place, the rock. And Lord, for, for us tonight, Lord, we just give you praise and glory for all you've done in our lives. The evil, the, the hard things that you've worked for our good, the things that you're working for our good, we give you praise. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.